Hey, good morning. Hey, happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. Happy birthday, America. It's great to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, America. Hey, welcome to each and every one of you. And, and if you're a kid this morning, a special welcome to you. Let's give kids a hand for joining us this morning. Kids are like, well, I didn't have a choice. They shut down my space today. Uh, you know, Shannon already talked about this a little bit, but I just want to add a few words and ask for a few things uh, from all of us this, uh, this summer, okay? Uh, we are making some really big investments in the next generation this summer. That means making some changes to our building. And I just want you to know, if you have any questions at all about what's going on, we really, really don't want anyone left in the dark. We're really excited about what's happening. And so I would encourage you, if you have any questions, come and talk with a pastor or Bridget Fea, our director of uh, children's discipleship. We have hired a next generation executive director. His name is Dan Clancy and he'll be here in the next, he and his wife Leah are moving to town here in the next few weeks. Uh, Tim Porter and, and others will share more with you about that in, in weeks to come. But in the meantime, we got to do some work on the building. And that means kids are in here. So a couple things. Uh, if you could, let's just all be okay with noise. Is everybody okay with a little noise? Okay, kids, we are so glad that you are here. Kids are capable of understanding and doing more than we think, and we want them in the worship gathering, and now you have to be, okay? So we're all just going to love it. Everybody on board with that? Okay, second is, let's, yeah, okay, you can clap for that. Second is, uh, let's make room for kids. If you have a family of five, like myself, or seven, like some others, or, you know, we got families with ten people in them, it, it's hard to find a space to sit together, okay? So everybody, let's just make room for families this summer, and especially in the back rows. I'm looking at you back row people. You may have to, you may have to move up a little bit, because we want people to be able to leave if they need to. And uh, what was the other thing I was going to ask you to, oh, uh, if you would join us in praying for the fall already, okay? We are really excited about what's coming. We've had a team of elders, children's ministry workers, uh, leaders in the church and parents working on this for the better part of a year. And uh, we want to invite you to pray with us about the fall, okay? So we're going to do that right now. Ready? Would you pray with me this morning before we get started? Father in heaven, we thank you for our children and for the next generation. And together as your people gathered in your name, we call on you, asking that you would do a good work in the next generation. We pray for our high school, middle schools, and elementary schools in this area, asking that you would strengthen and call children to yourself, fill them with courage and boldness, help them to see the world as it really is, even when they're little and allow them to see you as you truly are, even when they're young. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. All right, well, we're wrapping up our series in Hosea this morning called I Will, and we're gonna do that with a look at Hosea chapter 11. The purpose of this series this summer has just been to look again at the heart of God, and particularly what the heart of God is like when there's been a lot of unfaithfulness? What is God like when we get really, really far from where he's called us to be? 
Before we read Hosea this morning, I want to share with you a New Testament scripture that we actually looked at earlier this spring. So if you were around in the spring, I hope this is a review for you. But this scripture articulates a tension at the heart of the human experience and of the Christian religion. Okay, it's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. So if you're around in the spring, I hope this rings a bell for you. But this is what Romans 3, 21 says. But now a righteousness, the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I hope we'll see that in Hosea today. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made righteous, they're saved, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And if you remember, redemption, again, is not a legal fiction. It's a real thing where one person buys another person out of slavery by payment of their debt. Verse 25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, meaning his patience and his mercy, God passed over former sins. In other words, there's just, there's just no time in previous generations when God really punished sin the way it should have been dealt with. He was patient. And in verse 26 then, this was to show, what Jesus did was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God's patience with us has left him open to the charge of being unjust and of not dealing with sin the way that it ought to be. So there are two tensions at the heart of all human experience and at the heart of the Christian religion. First of all, from our side, and everyone feels this, there's, there's this tension about how can God be good, sovereign, and omnipotent over all things, and yet there are still so much that is obviously dark and evil in the world. Semis full of dead immigrants and theaters being leveled full of people in Ukraine this week. If God is sovereign, wise, and good, how can that be? That's the tension that we feel from our side of things. But Romans 3 articulates this, the opposite side of the same coin. This is the tension from God's side. How can he be just and the one who justifies or saves or makes righteous people like us? We, we're the ones who've made the world the way that it is. How can God walk with us in relationship? Today in our reading in Hosea, God's going to call himself the Holy One in your midst. How can that be? How can God be both awesomely holy, righteous, and just, and walk with people in relationship? That's the tension from his side. Here's another way of articulating both sides, same coin. If God is not just... There is no hope for the world. If he is just, there's no hope for us. How is God going to reconcile that difference? Now, there are a couple of ways to get around it. One is to reduce or mitigate the holiness of God in your mind. And, and this is what secularism does. This is what liberal theologians do. They just, God becomes less holy, less awesome. He would never hurt you. 
Okay? The other is to mitigate or downplay what we've done. Well, it's really not that bad. Here's a little religion. Pray this prayer, do this penance, do it, etc., etc., you'll be fine. Christianity, as far as I know, Christianity is the only place that deals with both of those things as they really are. Christianity is the only thing that holds those poles apart from each other and deals honestly with the universe as it actually is. So that God is both holy and awesome and just on one side and we really, really are far from him on the other. And he really has done something about it, okay? So looking at Hosea chapter 11, this is one of the places that Romans 3 is talking about when it says the law and the prophets have been telling us about this the whole time. So we're on page 757, Hosea chapter 11, if you want to follow along in one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Remember Hosea's a prophet, 750 years before the birth of Christ, and it's about 20 years before the destruction of Israel. Actually, Hosea 11 is even much later than that. Okay, time really is running out for Israel uh, by the time Hosea 11 comes along. Israel is about to be destroyed because they've given themselves to other gods, in particular to a god named Baal, or if you're from the Midwest, Baal, okay? Uh, and I just share that because his name is gonna come up again today. And, and this is one of the things we've seen every week in this series. That God is not a coercive or a manipulative God. And if what we want are other gods, he will let them have us. This is one of the reasons, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, hell is locked from the inside. This is something that we choose when we follow after other gods. And the question today, I guess, is, is, well, how does God feel about that? And here we are at Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering idols and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So previously in Hosea, God has revealed himself as a grieving husband or or lover. And now he talks about himself uh, like a grieving husband. Father, and I think so. This is my opinion. Um, you know, you guys know how it is. I'm, I'm right. Uh, I think, or this feels like to me, the emotional climax of the whole book. And I think that's because, just my opinion, okay? I think that's because, as painful as it is to have a spouse leave you, it is just different when a child does that. An older friend of mine who with grown kids said to me once, you are never happier than your least happy child. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, I, for a couple of reasons, one is I think it's because, correct me if I'm wrong, you, with your children you can see the future, okay? If, if a romantic relationship falls apart or, or a spouse leaves, you know there, there's a sense on which you're kind of on a level playing ground and you can't necessarily say to them, honey, if you leave, this is, what, this is what happens. This is what follows. Here's what's coming. But when you start to see your child descending into darkness, it's like you can, they can, they can only see this far ahead. Do you know what I mean? It's like they can only see this far ahead, but you can see five and 10 and 30 years out and you just want to shake them because what you see is pain, pain and pain coming. I think the other reason that this, you know, I think this is the emotional climax of the, of the book. The other reason I think is because, okay, husbands and wives are, are given to each other to protect each other. Absolutely. But, you know, your, the sense of call to protect your children is just different. Do you know what I mean? You're the one who, you know, when they were just this big, you were the one taking care of them, protecting them. And to see your 23-year-old walking away and knowing that you have to let him go just brings with it a different level of pain. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I, and so God is revealing himself to his people as a father, having to let his kid go and what it's doing to him. And so this is what he says in verses one and two. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As you remember when I first rescued you and brought you up out of Egypt. But the more I called you, the more you went away. Older theologians call this the mystery of iniquity. Have you heard this phrase before? The mystery of iniquity. The more God invests himself in the relationship, the more God shows his goodness and his trustworthiness, and the more he puts himself out there, the further we walk away. And, and we, continue, we just live against what is best for us. It's a, it's a kind of insanity. And I... I mean, we have all done this on some level. I remember as a child and as sometimes as a teenager doing things that I knew would hurt me just to spite the world. That's dumb. <laughs> but that's what we do. That's the mystery of iniquity. The more I called them, the more I reached out to them, the more they would leave. 
And it makes no sense. He says they kept sacrificing to, to Baal and offering, you know, to idols. He says in verse 3, but I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. You've you seen dads, you know, toddling along with their little one? That's the image that God wants you to have of how he has treated us. I took them up by their arms. I healed them, but they didn't know it was me. You say, okay, you've seen a kid walk, learning to walk or riding a bike and poof. And here comes dad and he picks them up by the arms, brushes them off, knocks the gravel out of their knees, out of their hands. This is the, the image that God is, is providing to us to understand what he's like and what he's done. Now, for those you know, who are struggling with, with unbelief and anger with God because of things that have happened to you. I just want you to know that there were awful things that happened to Israel too. Most notably, 400 years of brutal slavery, a partial genocide. So not everything that's wrong with Israel is Israel's fault. And I know this doesn't completely answer all of our questions about suffering and the sovereignty of God, but all God is saying here is, Israel, I was there with you. I was with you there. Nothing ever happened to you I did not see. And I'm the one who picked you up. I'm the one who healed you and set you back on your feet. And he says in verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down and fed them. What on earth does that mean? If that strikes you as really weird, by the way, that's because it is really weird and you're reading it the right way, okay? This is how the New International Version uh, translates it. This is a Hebrew idiom, okay? You know, so if I were to say to you this morning, oh, it's raining cats and dogs, you all would know what I'm talking about, but the Chinese international student would be like, <laughs> what does that even mean? So, so, there's a cultural gap, okay, in this. So the New International Version just helps us understand what it was trying to say. The, the International Version puts it this way. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek. That's what it means. This is the image that God wants us to have. Picking a, come on dads, you know, you pick up a child and you rub your beard on their face. This is God. This is what he's like. I led them with cords of human kindness. God is never coercive. He's never manipulative. He does not bind people and drag them away against their will, but he leads with ties of love. He lifts us to his cheek. And this is the real God. Okay, whatever you've done this morning, or whatever has been done to you, this is what God is actually like. And this is what we walk away from when we walk away from him. Remember the in the first week of this series, Tim Porter uh, shared this with us. He said, when people tell me they've lost their religion and they don't believe in God in anymore, I, I like to ask them, can you tell me more about the God that you don't believe in anymore? Because I'll bet it's not the God I believe in either. I bet it's not the God of the, of the Bible. So I would just ask you that this morning. Is this, is this who you walked away from? When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called him out of Egypt. And the more I called, the more he went away. 
But I was the one who taught him to walk and I healed him. I took him up by the arms. I led him with cords of kindness and bands of love. I was like a father that lifts his child to the cheek. And this is who we exchange when we bow down to Baal or Baal. This is what we're giving up. And inevitably the result, when we do that, and we've seen this every week in this series, when we bow down to Baal, we get enslaved, we start fighting, injustice reigns, violence follows. Real people really do get hurt when we bow down to Baal. And real injustice and real violence flow out of what we would consider private sins. And so this is the judgment of God. In verses 5 through 8, here's what he says. So they shall not return to the land of Egypt. You remember, if you were here last week, uh, now this is back in chapter 2 and 3. Uh, is that right? I can't remember. Whatever. Last week. You were there. Okay. Uh, Israel was calling out to Assyria for help. Okay, well now we're further along in the story. They figured out this is not gonna, ha- this is not gonna work. Assyria is about to gobble us alive. Let's go to Egypt, they're saying. And God says to them, you're, you're not going to Egypt. You wanna worship Assyrian gods. You wanna call to Assyrian kings for help. Then to Assyria you go. This is only fair. This is what you've been asking for and now you'll have it. And he says in verse six, this, So the sword will rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, in this context, Most High is actually Baal. Okay, so Most High, is that's how people talk to Baal. Says if that's who you call out to, he can't can't help you. He's not going to raise you up. And that now we come to, okay, this is the heart of the message. In verse 8, he says, well, how can I do this? How can I give you up? I want you to notice for the first time since God was talking to Hosea back in the beginning, for the first time now God is speaking directly to his people. Okay, the, the they's have turned into you's. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? What is, what is God really like? That's the whole point of this series. What is he really like? Let's put the pieces together. God has already decided that it's over for Israel. Things have gotten too bad. There's been too much bloodshed, too much violence, too much idolatry. The nation is irrevocably lost. And in verse 6, God says, the sword is coming for your cities and the bars of your gates. As a, as a geopolitical entity, Ephraim is done. It's going to join the long list of empires that have come and rotted from the inside and gone. But in verse 8, he's speaking now to the people themselves. And he's asking, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? If you remember, to give someone up or to hand someone over, in verse 8, is this, it's the truth, it's the universal law that God will give us to what we worship. He is not going to fight with us forever. And at some point, if what you want are other gods, he will let you go. Now this is how the New Testament puts the same thing. This is Romans chapter one, verse 18. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and so God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over first to the lusts of their hearts and then to sexual immorality and finally to every conceivable form of moral and spiritual darkness. That is the wrath of God. To be given over to what we worship. To let Baal have us. And if that won't get our attention, then we will be given to what we want forever in hell. What Assyria is about to do to Israel it is only a preview. It is a trailer of the ultimate judgment of God. And it's a warning to everyone. And God is wrestling. How can I do that? He says, how could I make you like Adma and Zeboim? It's in verse 8. Now, Adma and Zeboim were cities on the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14 and 19. Sodom and Gomorrah are much more famous. They were larger. They were richer. And Adma and Zeboim, you know, suburbs of those cities, but they shared in Sodom and Gomorrah's fate. Now, for 200 years, you know, scholars have been denying that such an event ever took place. But actually, just last year, in 2021, archaeologists found these cities. I want to share with you what they, what they found on the southern plain of the Dead Sea. So in the Bronze Age, the region that we now call the Dead Sea was this rich, well-watered, fertile plain. In Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim were giant cities for their day. Archaeologists have uncovered what they believe were five-story buildings uh, in the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. They estimate the population to have been about 50,000 people. That's a, a huge uh, place for the Bronze Age, and they were very rich. And today, you can go Google this, it looks like the moon. There's a, we call it the Dead Sea. This is from an article. You can go ask Uncle Google this later today, okay? They'll tell you everything you want to know. This is from the Smithsonian Magazine. It says, whatever happened at these cities could not have been war or a volcano like Pompeii or an earthquake. They say, whatever happened was an instantaneous high-pressure event. The current working theory is that a meteor exploded a mile and a half above uh, in the atmosphere over Sodom and Gomorrah with the energy of a thousand Hiroshima bombs. One researcher says this, air temperatures rose almost instantaneously above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Clothing and wood immediately burst into flames. People were incinerated where they stood. Swords, spears, mud bricks, and pottery began to melt. Almost immediately, the entire city was on fire. This was interesting. Whatever happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, they're saying, was so fast and so intense that the outside of pottery is melted and the inside is untouched. Researchers say, this is research again, seconds after the blast, a shockwave ripped through the city at a speed of 740 miles an hour. The buildings were reduced to foundations and rubble. No people or animals survived. Their bodies were torn apart 
and their bones blasted into fragments. That's what happened at Adma and Zeboim. In Genesis chapter 18 says that God did that because, quote, the outcry against these cities was very great and their sin was very grave. They were beyond healing. We just have no conception of what the Bible means when it talks about the wrath of God. But this is what cosmic justice has to be, and God knows. God knows what justice will look like, and he says, my heart recoils within me. It recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender, and I cannot do this. That's his conclusion. If you look at verse 9, he says, I won't. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. Burning anger is God's, it's, it's justified pent up wrath against evil. It's, it's like an oven that we just keep feeding again and again. And he says in verse nine, I can't, I can't do this. I will not do this to my people. Why? He, he says in verse nine, why? Because I'm not like you, he says. You would do that. To your enemy. If, if people treated you the way that you've treated me, you would blast them. But I'm not like you, he says. I am the Holy One in your midst. And I will not, this is the end of verse 9, I will not come in wrath. Judgment, yes. Ephraim is done. As a nation, it, it is going to cease to exist. But no one has ever known the wrath of God. There isn't a single person here or anywhere in the world that has ever really known the wrath of God. We have no idea what we're talking about. There's only one. There's only one person in the history of the world that knows the bone-shattering wrath of God. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, he quotes Hosea chapter 11 and says, This chapter is about Jesus. Jesus is the son called up out of Egypt, he says. He's the one who's precious in in, in God's sight and deserving no divine retribution, yet offered in our place. Romans chapter 3 calls it a propitiation for our sin. The the bone-shattering, burning, pent-up anger of God was vented on Jesus at the cross. Before you stomp and pout and, and, you know, cry about the injustice of all that, like a liberal theologian would do, look at how this ends in verse 10. They shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come home. You remember in Hosea? Now, well, chapters 5 and 6. That's what it was last week, okay? Hosea chapters 5 and 6 last week, God said, I'm like a lion and I'm going to tear you if that's what it takes to bring you home. Here he is as a lion again. And and he says, they shall go after, meaning they're going to seek my face. God said, I'm going to tear you and I'm going to wait for you to seek my face. And now here in chapter 11, he's saying, they shall go after the Lord. And God says, someday I'm going to roar and my children are going to come trembling from all the corners of the earth to me. 
So I think, again, more opinion from Tim Prince this morning. What a fun morning for everybody. Just more, more of this. I, Hosea must have been a favorite book of C.S. Lewis. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia and Hosea, like I had to cut 500 words about C.S. Lewis last week. Poor me, but now you get it, okay? He must have loved Hosea because in, in, you know, in Hosea, or in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the great lion, is the Christ figure. And when Aslan sacrifices himself for Edmund, when he's raised from the dead, when he's resurrected, what does he do? Remember, you've seen the movie? He roars. And if you read the book, it says that the trees bent like grass in the wind at the sound of his, war, of his roar. And from the lamppost to the eastern sea, all of Narnia shook. And all the good creatures of Narnia were filled with hope and courage and his enemies filled with terror and awe. The resurrection is the roar of Jesus. The resurrection is his claim to lordship over everything that exists. And the only question that matters is, are you one of those people that is coming trembling from east and west? from north and south to the king. Because there is no other sacrifice for sin. Okay, there, there's absolutely no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. If you're a note taper, just, just write Hebrews chapter 10 in the margin of your Bible and go home and read it today. Hebrews chapter 10 makes it clear that God has done everything needed to bring us home and to earn our allegiance and our trust. And if we will not surrender even to that, there's no plan B. This idea that there are many paths to God and all religions teach basically the same thing is a lot of limp-brained, lazy nonsense. There are no other religions that teach these things about Jesus. When we say that kind of thing, it's because we don't want to listen and we don't want to think that hard. The idea that we're all walking different paths up the same mountain and we all, we all have a different part of the elephant, you know, a bunch of blind men gathered around the elephant. There are Christians who talk this way. When Christians are put on the spot, they'll say, yeah, there are many ways to God, there are many paths to God. Well, Hebrews chapter 10 says, when we do that, we, quote, trample the Son of God underfoot profane the blood of the covenant and outrage the spirit of grace. Outrage the spirit of grace. I had one friend put it to me this way a couple of weeks ago. She said, how would you feel if your son put himself forward to be blasted by wrath and the response of people was, meh, meh, thanks, but we got it, we're good, and we're gonna do it this other way. How would you feel? What would your response be? This is the Christian message. That there is no other sacrifice for sin and there is no other hope that we can hold out to the world but Christ. But the hope we offer is a great one. Now it's, it's right, it's good, it's right and appropriate to ask at this point. What about the untold billions and billions and billions of people who've never even heard the name of Jesus 
Is it really fair that they should be relegated to hell by the circumstances of their birth? It's a great question. My, my question is, is that you today? First of all, is that you today? Is that your circumstance? And don't you think that the judge of all the earth will do what is right for those who've not yet heard the name of Jesus? I trust him to do what is right. I am asking about your soul today. I'm asking about you. What will you do with Jesus? Because he is roaring. And men and women from every nation on earth right now as we speak are being gathered to him. They're coming and trembling. What will you do? Let me close this whole series this way. I'm going to invite you to pray in just a minute. Here here are three things I want you to, to consider. First of all, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're one of those people that's lost their religion, is this really the God that you left behind? Or was it something or someone else? Is this really who you've left? And if it's not, would you come home? Second is, we're all drawn to different idols in our lives. We're all, drawn to, we're all tempted to trust in other things, to pursue other things, to hope in other things. Is there anything that you know, you know, throughout this series, you, you know you've been trusting in or hoping in, and it is creating havoc in your life. Would you bring that to the Lord this morning? And finally, we need, as a church, as a congregation, we need to own our message. Everyone, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to make peace with, with Jesus Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice for sin. There is no other way, and we do not have any other message. But we need to, to own that in the spirit of Hosea. And that's the trick. That's the tension. How do we be people whose, whose confidence rests completely in the message of the gospel of Jesus, and yet we look and sound like the God of Hosea, who loves people the way a father loves a child, who is patient, who waits, who longs for them to return. Christians are, you know, we're just known too much for being triumphalistic or know-it-all or just about fill in the blank. And all of us feel that tension. What is it going to look like honor the one message we've been entrusted with and do it in a way that reflects the God of Hosea. And I don't have an answer for you, but that's why we're going to pray. I want to invite you to pray for your church this morning, to pray for yourself this morning, to pray for the valley this morning. All right, would you just take a moment right now? Our Father in heaven, thank you for Hosea. Thank you for who you are. 
And we ask God that you would roar over the St. Croix Valley, that you would gather men and women to yourself, that you would gather children to yourself. We pray together for those who know they have been faithless or wandered far, that you would draw them home. Father, we ask together that you would make us people whose whole hope is in what you have said about Jesus and and do it in the spirit of Hosea. Would you help us to grieve over the things that grieve you, to rejoice over the things that you rejoice in, and to never lose hope because you're a good and gracious God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing today.